I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. And it was really there that I figured out what I liked about reporting. I liked being on camera because you had a lot more power. You would decide what direction stories would go. Everything was coming through the prism of me and then the kind of questions that I asked, right? So uh, for good and for bad, sometimes your interviews would be a disaster. And it's like, well, you know, you took the wrong path in this interview. But often, you know, you sort of would work on how do I make sure that I'm framing this interview in a way that I think is helpful to my audience. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned. Soledad O'Brien is an award-winning documentarian, journalist, speaker, author, and philanthropist. Known as a provocative, credible, and smart interviewer throughout her career, Soledad has been dedicated to telling empowering and authentic stories on a range of social issues and is a thought leader whose public engagement garners wide attention. Soledad was recognized with three Emmys for her coverage of the Haiti earthquake, the 2012 election, and a series called Kids and Race. She was also honored twice with the George Foster Peabody Award for her coverage of Hurricane Katrina and her reporting on the BP Gulf Coast oil spill. Today, though, she's an entrepreneur, and she's the CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions. It's a multi-platform media production company that she runs and that she started. I wanted to start by asking Soledad about where she grew up and her early influences. I grew up in, and hi, and thanks for having me. I grew up in Long Island, Strong Island. Strong <laughs> Island, as, yeah. we, as we like to say. I, I Actually, NBC many years ago sent me to speech classes to help lose my Long Island accent. So now I have a very like flat, nowhere accent. Yeah. I grew up in Long Island where we say water and call me. And I had a big family. I have um, three sisters and two brothers. And I think a lot of my influences came from my siblings. They were all very successful, sort of academically at school at first. But I think also just, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but they had very strong minds. Like if they wanted to get something done, they just got it done. And, and I, and maybe that stubbornness and maybe that sometimes bleeds into being a pain in the butt, but like everyone sort of had their thing. And I was a little bit like that too. My parents are both foreigners to this country. My dad was from Australia. My mom was uh, Afro-Cuban. They both passed away a couple of years ago now. And I think they were pretty strict probably as my friends would go. My friends used to say, well, just your parents said you have to be home by 11. Just don't. What are they going to do if you don't? I'm like, literally kill me. They literally, <laughs> I, I will be dead tomorrow. Because a lot of my friends, you know, their parents were a little, I grew up in the, in, I was in high school in the 80s. So my friends were little, parents were a little more loose with what they let their kids do. My parents were not. They're very strict. I was the number five child. I have a little brother and uh, who's number six. And I think my parents, because they were both educators, were very focused on just sort of taking advantage of opportunities that were given to you. So they definitely moved us into a community that was not a particularly diverse community, which I think in some ways was a little bit challenging, maybe for some of my siblings more than others, but had good schools or public schools that you could take advantage of good opportunities within that school. And I think that really set us up in a lot of ways. Because if you have six kids, they certainly couldn't afford to send us to you know, boarding school or prep school or whatever. 
you know, so I think they navigated that and that it always has trade-offs and costs, et cetera, et cetera. But I think my earliest influences were my siblings. We all pushed each other and we all thought we could do better. And I remember being pregnant early on in probably my first pregnancy with my daughter, Sophia, who's now 21, and just feeling like everything's, I said, my sister, everything's terrible. I, I feel miserable. Everything hurts. Like, and she's like, you're exactly where you should be. And, <laughs> and just someone telling you that, like, yep. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. Was so helpful later when I would become an entrepreneur. The same thing, you know, when someone sort of says, "Oh, yeah," it's like you feel completely out of control, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really comforting to just know you haven't lost your mind that that someone has been through this experience before, and they're telling you, "Yes, baby's not sleeping. You don't know what to do. The world's falling apart." Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, got it. <laughs> I think that that's so true. Oh, just as an entrepreneur and understanding, you know, even for someone like yourself who had such a, a storied career and then started your own business, that it's not easy street. But one of the things that I've noticed on this show and talking to entrepreneurs, the biggest thing that I find has led to success is that drive and that resiliency. And you said that your brothers and sisters, you all had it. Where did that, did that stem from your parents? Was it stemming from your, where did that stem from? It's actually a problem, right? Because I think for kids who have a lot more than I ever had, a lot of your drive comes from your parents being like, huh, oh, well, I'm sure you'll figure it out. I guess you'll get a job if you want to take horseback riding lessons. I guess you'll you know, figure out how to do this thing you want. Oh, there's a school, you know, my parents would, they were solidly middle-class, but with six kids. So they were never, I mean, I remember when I was around when Jordache jeans first came out. I mean, Adam from Long Island, like you're <laughs> Of course. <laughs> no, and my parents, were, my mom was like, a hundred percent. No, I think they cost $78. And that was just this insane idea. Cause you could get Levi's for 20 bucks. She's just like a hundred percent. No. So if you were hard-headed and you wanted something, then you had to figure out a way to get it, whether it was something physical or just an opportunity. You know, no one was really going to help you. And I think if you are a kid who doesn't need a lot of guidance, then that's a really great thing. I think for kids who need more kind of hands-on help, this can be a little bit tougher. I always worry about for my kids because I'm I'm better off than my parents were. And some ways, these days, we just don't do what we used to. Kids just don't run outside and play. And someone calls you back at night. You horseback riding. I remember I used to take horseback riding lessons as a kid. My parents never went. We used to hop on random horses in this giant ring, probably seven of us, maybe more, which is an insane number of horses in a ring. And you get the horses to canter. They just slap them on the butt and send them around. Like... I mean, I go and watch my daughter ride. We make sure her helmet is the best helmet that a kid should have. And she has all the gear and, you know, I just, it's just so different. So I worry sometimes because we do a lot more handholding for kids who are privileged and have a lot of access and opportunity. And I think a lot of drive comes from somebody saying, well, if you want it, I guess you're going to have to figure it out. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I think I worry about some of those similar things, especially with children now and raising children and also growing up during the eighties. I wasn't, I remember the Jordash jeans. I wasn't, I was going for the parachute pants and, oh, uh, you know, the members only jacket. Tell me. The members, members only. only I had the black members only jacket. <laughs> oh, that was so legit. But I think too, and growing up, it was very different with involvement with parents and also just how they steered you. 
And that is something that it sounds like you had to figure out your way. And you really took to or you went into journalism, I assume. Was that was that always a focus of yours when? No, no, no. I was pre-med in college. I took organic chemistry, actually, with my sister, who's a surgeon now. And I remember she told me, she said this interesting thing. She's a fantastic, like just brilliant mind. And she said, you know, I feel like you're memorizing all these things and you should be able to deduce them. Like this was not the formula, but you know, Y equals MX plus B is the formula of a line. Y equals X axis, Y axis, B is a variable in space. And her whole thing was like, you should understand, you should understand the formula as opposed to just regurgitating the formula, which was just, I was, I mean, I was like, literally, I had no idea what you're talking about. So I think she made it very clear to me that while I was pretty good at it, I just didn't really have a passion for it. And I'm really glad I'm not in medicine now. My my dog, my, my sister and my brother are both doctors. And I think they find it, you know, certainly in this era of COVID, extremely, extremely frustrating. So I think that I early on had always planned, I was a nurse's aide. By the way, nurse's aide in the 80s was a great job if you were a college student because it paid up much higher than what you're going to get babysitting or any other job. It was like a professional job. I've been a nurse's aide. I worked in, I did all these things to prepare for going to medical school to look good on a resume. And I decided not to go. So I started working at a TV station and kind of, I was, had a summer gig and I volunteered. I was an intern and I loved it. And I knew that, that, you know, it just was something, it, it it's so hard for young people, I think, because you're sort of asked, what do you want to do? And, and you don't really understand that, you know, oh, I like people can be 50 jobs or, oh, for me, I really discovered that I liked something that was done at the end of the day and you could start up again the next day, right? A TV show was like that, that you would do your all and then you got to try again the next day, which I really enjoyed. But I, I never really thought about that before, um, before I worked at a TV news station. So I interned at WBZ TV and I loved it. They hired me on as a production assistant for a medical reporter because of my pre-med background. Although I'm not sure organic chemistry and biology will really, really add It was a lot. good enough uh, at the time. <laughs> I could talk a good game in my interview. And then I started working at, at local TV and I loved it. I loved being in the newsroom. It was very exciting. And it, it was all, then I really discovered like, oh, I love something that's really challenging. And then you're done and you go to, whether it was great or it was horrific, you get to start again tomorrow and get better. I loved creating. I was more creative than I would have given myself points for. And I loved the medium. I liked video and audio more than just audio alone and certainly more than just writing for a newsprint or magazine. So I kind of figured all that out. And so I, I really think it was a combination of my sister highlighting like that she saw the signs that I just wasn't that into it um, because she, brilliant minded, she could deduce any formula. I mean, she was that kind of person who'd say, you know, I think I should write a formula for this thing I'm trying to solve. Like she was, a, she was an unbelievable student. So, you know, I think once you get to the point of, I don't know what to do, and then you solve it, you find a really happy groove. From there, you have to start figuring out well, is that producing? Do I want to be on camera? Is that executive producing and producing what? Is it just medical stories or what kind of storytelling do I like to do? And then the process of my career was really that, figuring that out. And it sounds, it's incredible, the relationships it sounds like you, you have with your siblings and for them to be able to really share with you like this, this isn't you, but this might be you. And it seems like 
that has has helped you and really put you on the right path or did back then? I mean, you became an award-winning journalist, right? I mean, tell us about going from, because I want to get into what you're doing today, but going from WBZ and then where you were a main fixture on, on CNN. Yeah, you know, it's funny because you're making it sound like my siblings were giving, were reflecting back very helpfully and nicely. And it, I mean, they were siblings, right? So sometimes people <laughs> make fun of you. I mean, my brothers and sisters, they weren't angels. But it's true. I think often people reflect back to you something you don't know about yourself for good and for bad. I remember my dad once, I, I tell this story a lot, but often to college students. My dad once said, I was trying to learn how to ride a bike and, um, and my neighbor was helping me. And my dad said, when I wasn't going very well, he said, oh, I know you're going to get it because you're the kind of person who doesn't give up. And just the, I, when someone kind of plants that, not just you shouldn't give up, don't give up, but like you're the kind of person who it is. I remember it like it was yesterday. I must have been eight years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. And there have been times in my life and my career when things sucked and they weren't going well. And my dad, you know, I would literally be like, I am the kind of person who doesn't give up. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I've really tried to reflect that to my own kids, you know, like framing it that way. Like you're, let me reflect back to you, not what I hope for you or, you know, kind of cheer you up, but like, here's what I see in you that you don't necessarily see in yourself. And I have found that very, very powerful. So I, I left um, WBZ as a producer and I went to NBC News uh, to work as a producer for a guy named Bob Bazell. He used to do the science and medical reporting. Great, great man, great man. And he, partly because Boston, right, was a great market for hospitals. And so working with a medical reporter, I was often doing things or getting things that would be used in the network. So I knew Bob and my boss knew him. And, and so that helped me connect. And I worked for Bob for a couple of years and then went out to San Francisco to start reporting at KRON TV in San Francisco, which was my first reporting job, which was great. I mean, I was, I'm so glad there was no YouTube at the time and there was no social media because I think, you know, all the mistakes you, you get to make as a young person fledgling in your career. And I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. And it was really there that I figured out what I liked about reporting. I like, I like being on camera because you had a lot more power. You know, you would decide what direction stories would go. Everything was coming through the prism of me and then the kind of questions that I asked, right? So uh, for good and for bad, sometimes your interviews would be a disaster. And it's like, well, you know, you took the wrong path in this interview, but often, you know, you sort of would work on how do I make sure that I'm framing this interview in a way that I think is helpful to my audience. And so I really found like, oh, I really liked being on camera. I really liked anchoring. I really liked kind of being the headliner of a show because I set the tone. You get to set the tone on your show. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I went back out to, uh, and I did a show. I started at MSNBC launched in 1996 and they were looking for an anchor. I remember I actually left Cron because my boss you know, they had a lot of female anchors and they didn't want anymore. So, you know, it's so funny. I've had a couple of instances in my career where you realize that you're in a bit of a fork in the road. And I've always been pretty good about not just getting mad and storming off. I've had a couple of friends and colleagues who've done that. <laughs> yeah. I knew a girl who took her ID and took it off and smushed it into the going away cake we'd gotten for her. <laughs> just very memorable. Highly don't recommend that. Uh, I love it. I, I love I, it, but not for her. <laughs> yeah, no. It's funny. It's almost the only thing I remember about her. But I realized that 
when people around you don't see something for you, you, you actually have to make the decision. It's helpful. I mean, it sounds so weird, right? But like when people don't get it, what you think you can do and you don't think you're insane, you know, or you're not being, I felt like I should be, you know, I, it's not brain surgery. I should be able to do this. And if they don't want to give me an opportunity, I probably need to go somewhere else, which is what I did. And later in my life, when I left CNN to go start my own company, it was a similar thing. Like if someone doesn't see what you think you can bring, you know, at some point you have to say, it sounds so counterintuitive, but almost thank you for telling me and not BSing me that, you know, oh my God, we love you. We have a great opportunity just six months down the, you know, you, we've all been there where someone just keeps talking to you and, and you realize like, and it usually takes me a really long time. I'm very gullible. So you start realizing like, oh, this is not a thing. This is not a thing. And so in both instances and more, I've had people sort of say like, here's what I see. And then I can say, oh, okay, well, I see something different. I think it's probably time for me to go. And uh, and so I left for MSNBC and started anchoring a show. And I did that for about a year and a half. And that show got canceled. It was when Princess Diana died. We were doing a show called mm-hmm. The Sight, which was a show about technology. And we were pre-taped, which was an interesting way to learn how to anchor, right? Because you're the risks are kind of low. You're, you're on tape. And then when Princess Diana died, all the networks kind of switched into wrote live coverage of Princess Diana. And there really wasn't a space for our show anymore. It just didn't, you know, we, so that show went away. I went back to NBC News to be the newsreader eventually for the Today Show and then for the Weekend Today Show. And then eventually I started anchoring the Weekend Today Show at NBC News. I uh, did that for a couple of years and then left uh, for a better opportunity at CNN, which I did for about 10 years, which I really enjoyed. And then in 2000. 13, I left to start my own production company, which was great because I was beginning to get to the point of one, I think what other people saw for me is what, not what I saw for myself. And with that, you know, I remember sitting covering John Benet Ramsey and just thinking like, I'm literally out here with 90 other reporters. Like this is not, I had so such great success in documentaries like Black in America and Latino, where you're by yourself and you're in a story or docs we did in Haiti or docs we did in Thailand and the tsunami where you're really reporting and you're not just standing in a line. That's right. Invest, you know, like we could be here, we could be sitting, I could see sitting on my bed at home. It wouldn't matter. You know, someone has just called you up with the information and I just didn't like it. So that seemed to me to be time to, to move on to something else. Was that the moment after all those years as a journalist and a well-accomplished journalist, was that the moment or was there other specific moments or times where you were just like, I think I made my mark here and I want to go start my own business? Yeah, definitely. I think it was a piece of that, maybe the flip of it, which is I don't want to do this thing that is making me miss my daughter's birthday. I don't think I need to be standing here on a story that I'm really not reporting. I'm just a body and I'm missing another weekend. Like that to me, you know, I became the person who, and I didn't mind it when it was interesting stories to do, but you could never rely on me, right? I would sign up to be the class mom. Never, 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 never. And so, you know, and, and listen, that's the, just what comes along with the gig, which I don't mind, but it definitely got frustrating when you felt like I don't need to be here. There's nothing that physically I need to be here. I remember we were covering the Newtown school shooting, you know, in week one, is amazing because CNN is great with breaking news coverage. They do a lot of political stuff everybody does now, which I think is a mistake, but they just had so much breaking news coverage and, and you get such great access. Week two, it's kind of like, 
okay, everybody's sort of like, oh, you guys are still here. Wow, okay, but there's investigation. Week three, you're just drawing out a story and now everyone is sick of you. And as mm. they drive their cars past your live shop, they lean on their horn. You know, people who are so nice to you, they're just tired of you because the truth is there's a little tiny increase in viewership that, you know, from this, the story has gotten a bump and nobody wants to give up on the bump, right? So they keep framing, even though, it's done. It's done. And I've been covering those stories and I've been, you know, in the middle of a story. You're like, oh my God, go home. At one point there was a, someone, I can't remember who the reporters were, but there was a bus in Newtown going through and they had set up these two reporters to make it look like they were in two different locations, but they weren't because in the shot, you can see the front of the bus in somebody's shot and the middle of the bus in the next one. <laughs> but you know, like, right, the whole, it really highlighted the idea of like, we're trying to give a sense of urgency to a story that we're covering live. We've got round the clock team coverage when actually it's like two people standing near each other because the way you plug in the truck, it's much easier to do. You can roll the cable out, you know, more easily. But, you know, like, was it valuable reporting? I'm going to say it was not. And I just wanted to be able to say, I go do the stories that I think are important for me. And then I leave and, you know, and, and go do something else. And I only work with the people that I want to work with on the stories that I want to work on. And when you decided to walk away, did you have an idea in your mind of what you wanted to do? I knew I wanted to run a production company. I knew that I had the name and the credibility and the ability not to run a company, which I'd never done, but certainly the, doing the work was not a problem. I had saved a lot of money. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I, I like the show that we're doing, the radio show that we're doing, because it's a, a different platform. I've never done radio before. I get to work with Gene Chatsky, who we worked with at the Today Show years back, but also like how you are set up and teed up in your financial life will determine those things that you get to do or those areas in which you won't get to do. So I had been pretty well compensated when I was at CNN. So I could have a lot of money saved and I could use those savings and think about how I wanted to invest them in the company to make sure that I could run a viable company. So I, I think it's a lot of the work that we do now is sort of help people like figure out and what to do with their money. And also like, how do you, for me, it was and people would say, well, what size office do you want? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. All my stuff's on my dining room table. I know it shouldn't be there. So it needs to be out of there. But really just walking through the process of starting your own company and what the positions are and who reports to who and how you think about workflow. Those are just things I hadn't done before. And, and that was pretty overwhelming because every day, you know, you just had questions coming at you that you just didn't know the answer to. How did you handle that at that time? You had Done, you know, as I say, as a journalist, you knew your profession inside and out. Here you're starting a business, which you understand, but there's so many different things you probably had never dealt with starting this business. Was was that a very difficult process? Did you lean on anyone? Did you talk to people? How did you get yourself through that? Yeah, my husband was in finance, so he was very helpful in terms of just the business plan 101, doesn't do anything in TV. But really, I leaned on a lot of friends who ran production companies and how they thought about their workflow. I mean, you know, I'm a little bit different because I still am talent too. So I do some reporting in addition to being just a straight production company. We also do on-camera stuff. So that was a little bit different. So our structure would have to be a little bit different. But I really leaned on friends who were running companies and who sort of could say, really, here's the mistake I made. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't need to make that. And so I had really great advice. And, and, you know, it's so amazing to me, the number of people are just willing, especially if they like their business, um, to sit down. And, you know, there are so many things that are just true in a company that may or may not 
they may or may not be specific to production, but they just make sense generally. One guy who I, I remember having lunch with him, he had just sold his company for half a billion dollars, right? And I'm like, I do not know why I'm talking to you. I have three employees, me, my assistant, and one lone producer. Like, this is insane. I'm, I'm wasting your time. And he was so helpful on some of his best advice. And he's like, fire fast. He, had, he told me the story of firing one of his dearest friends. It just wasn't working. And he was just gave great advice about, you know, managing people, which... Of course, is managing people is managing people, whether they're in his business or, you know, in my business. And so he was very, very, he was very, very helpful. And I kind of went into that lunch thinking we have nothing in common, but I just had so many people give great advice about how to think about your business. Now that we're getting bigger, we have 16 full-time employees. It's much more, we're having the conversations of, well, what do you want to do next? Like, is it just going to be something that you do till you're 85? And is it going to be something that you want to grow and scale and sell? Is it, is it something you want to hand off to your kids? It's, you know, I, I, I don't know. Those are all the conversations that we're having now that, again, I think are very typical for people who run businesses. It's sort of the arc, the life arc of a business. More from our guests. But first, a word from our sponsors. No one succeeds alone. Even the best entrepreneurs know when it's time to bring in an outside expert. With Upwork, you can find top developers, designers, project managers, and more who can start today so your business can succeed tomorrow. You can check work samples, client reviews, and more to make sure you're hiring the right pro for your business. And there's no cost until you hire. Plus, you'll only pay for work you approve. Whether you're looking to hire a single pro for a project or an entire team to scale your business, Upwork can help you reach your goals. And however you hire, Upwork is available to help you keep things running smoothly with 24-7 support, letting you stay focused on what matters, your business. Find the right talent for whatever your business needs at Upwork, the world's work marketplace. Learn more at www.upwork.com. And our next sponsor. Want to be your own boss in the fast-growing $20 billion tutoring industry? Want to help kids? Then become a Huntington Learning Center franchisee. As a Huntington Learning Center franchisee, you join the nation's number one K-12 tutoring and test prep provider with a proven system that works. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup expenses and an award-winning team dedicated to your success. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. Take the next step. Learn how you can join Huntington and have a lucrative and rewarding future. Call Huntington today at 1-800-653-8400 or visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Again, call 1-800-653-8400. And we're back. Was there a time early on where maybe you thought to yourself, I should go back and and focus on journalism? Was there ever a time you wanted to walk away? No, not really, for two reasons. One, I always got to continue to do journalism. So I never had a moment of like, I'm out. How do I get back in? I've kind of kept my toe dipped in and I've really been happy with it. I get to do a little bit less than normal. 
that I used to do. And I really appreciate it. So I, any story that I'm dying to do, for the most part, I get to go do it. Anything I'm really, any little, you know, itch I want to scratch, I definitely get to do. So I think that helped a lot, you know, and then I think the other thing was I never felt that I didn't enjoy it. I found the learning every day. It reminds me of the first week you're at a new job where you don't even know where the bathroom is, you know, and every time you have to go to the bathroom, you're like, excuse me, I feel like it's, is it down this hall? I can't remember. You know, it's like, you just hate being the new guy. And it felt like that, like every day for about a year, you were the new guy because someone would come in and say, so what are we doing about quarterly taxes? And you're like, what? <laughs> I did not know that was something we had to do, but they're due in three days. So I yeah. guess I'm going to get on it. And I probably should hire an accountant and I probably should get a finance guy. And we also, you know, like it just every day felt like you were learning. And so it wasn't, it was overwhelming in that way, right? Every day somebody would come in and say, well, what kind of ed gear do we want? Like, I don't know, which means going to determine what kind of cameras you have, which is going to determine, you know, so that it just felt like a lot. And it was areas that I was not particularly familiar with. I had been a producer in the field in a long time. So just many things that I didn't really know. But, you know, I started making some mistakes. We did a budget once. I remember that was so ridiculously low. I'm sure that people were like, yes, we love this. <laughs> we're in. And then I had to go overseas and shoot this thing, you know, and it was really, and, and I had often farmed out the, the budgets to people who've done budgets. And I was like, you know what? That's what you get when you're not on top of something that is your money. No one is going to feel it like you feel it. So no, I sign off on every budget. And it was a great way to learn about exactly some budgets. You say, actually doing the math now, we should turn this business down. You know, it just happens. So I, I learned a lot, but sometimes that process of learning everything is just, it's just a lot and stressful. Uh, and then one day, about a year, probably about a year and a couple of months in, maybe almost a year and a half in, it was like, oh, I know the answer to that question. Oh, I think we should shoot it like this. Oh, I think the budget should be something like this because now I've done five of them and I understand, you know, and you start to just learn. And, uh, and so that made it just much more pleasant. So I never had a moment of, you know, I'm out, I don't want to do this anymore because any docs I wanted to do or any shows I wanted to do, I would just pitch them. We, we do a show now, in addition to our, our radio show, we do a, a television show called Matter of Fact and Everyday Wealth, of course, our radio show. I did a podcast for a little bit. Sometimes we jump in and out of podcasts. And I am a correspondent for HBO Real Sports. You know, and so it's a nice kind of balance. They're all very different. And it allows me to explore the medium, the radio versus broadcast television versus HBO and being a correspondent. And it's exactly the right balance. Yeah, you know, you talk about learning on the job, so to speak, or with the business. From the entrepreneurs I've spoken with who've built these billion dollar businesses or whatever small business, medium size, it's always about learning, understanding, making that change. And I love how you said, you know, you realize I needed to look at the budget because you, you can't outsource that stuff and keep outsourcing and not have an understanding of it. And it sounds like that's what really helped you to continue to grow. And my question is today, as you've ramped up more people, gone from a smaller production company to a larger one, has is it more stress on you now, even though you understand a lot of things? Because you're continuing to grow and get bigger. How do you handle the day-to-day -day and, and potentially the stress that's involved? Yeah, no, it's much less stressful because I think one, we have a good team and you sort of understand that you have a great team. I remember once I had a guy 
who was handling buying insurance for us. And I would ask him, so let's walk me through so I understand what we're doing. And he said, well, it's a very gray area. Now I had life insurance and home insurance, car insurance. So I'm like, you know, one thing about insurance, not a gray area. Insurance is actually insanely clear, right? <laughs> like we cover this, we do not cover that. And this is what it's going to cost you. And I remember at that moment saying like, oh, he, he, he needs to go. Like, because I can't have people who are, not transparent, right? Like I just can't work with people. You know, I'm not, I need to dive in and understand how we're going to insure these crews on the road. But I know one thing, which is insurance is never, well, you know, well, it'll all come out in the wash. Like that is not the entire never business. Does. <laughs> the one business um, never does. And it was one of those. And so I've had a couple of moments of real clarity in a, you know, in, in, and so it got less stressful because I knew the questions to ask. And I knew the general sense of like the budget should be roughly this. Why is this so much higher or why is this so much lower? It doesn't make sense to me. Or I feel like we could shoot this thing in a month. Why do we have it in for six weeks? You know, and so you just keep learning, but your, your team gets better. And by me, for me, better meant people who were unafraid. Like you can bring me bad news. I have zero problem with this is a mess. I need to walk you through it. I much prefer everyone knows. I much prefer that than somebody just not telling me. I had a person who used to hide contracts in her desk. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, that would stress me out versus someone who says like, I'm always going to come to you with, if it's terrible news, it's terrible. I will just tell you. And you know, most stuff, I've covered a lot of disasters. So I sort of feel like most stuff is not so terrible in the scheme of terrible things mm -hmm. that I've seen. Most contractual things can be solved. Most projects you want to work on, you tell people why you want to do it and, and they you know, they listen to you and they agree or they disagree, but you know, it's not a tsunami. It's not an earthquake. It's not a tornado. You know, those things are really terrible. So I have a pretty good perspective about things that are challenging. I love that you have that perspective from where you come from and understand that when you look at it and building a business or maybe dealing with under budgeting a shoot, when you compare it to some of the stories you've covered and have lived, it's not such a huge deal, but so many people within their businesses, even little things they think could be life or death. And many times with, as an entrepreneur, sometimes the best thing you lose a big account, it's the best thing for your business or, you know, you, you gain learn when it's your own money. You, you learn fast. You, I never did a bad budget after that one. I'll you, tell you. You understand it. You learn it. And I want to talk about some of the stuff you've been involved with. It seems like you've been ahead of, uh, of the curve. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of your focus has been on bridging, you know, kind of the, the equity gaps and providing people uh, with the tools they need to succeed. Can you talk where, where that desire comes from? there's a desire in everyone to be useful. I think if you had to ask people like, you know, often people talk about their passion and their brand, but you know, I think under, if you clear all that away under that, it's like, you want to be useful. You want to be helpful, which is why I think back to, you can ask people for advice and they'll often give it to you. You know, people that you think would you never get on the calendar and they'll say, you know, they may not be able to give you five hours, but they certainly can give you some advice. So I've been, I, I think it's because most people want to be helpful and want to be useful and want to help others learn from their mistakes. You know, when, when I started, my husband, and I started a small foundation to send girls to and through college, partly because both of our parents were educators and we knew how much college really could make a difference for somebody, especially if you were in poverty and of mm. color, you know, that you kind of needed a, a thing, either you needed to 
have a relative leave you a lot of money, which probably wasn't going to happen. <laughs> well, you sure. needed a career, you know, and not just a gig, you needed a career. And that often meant a lot of education. So we started that production company. And then out of that really made me with a lot of these young women try to figure out like, how can you help them financially, not just giving them money, but even just helping people understand how to use their money. One of our scholars, you know, she, she literally owed money to somebody called, I thought it was a joke at first, yourrichuncle.com. She borrowed money, you know, to go to college. I was like, that's a joke. Like you're kidding, right? There's not a company. No, there is. Like they, I think it's, I think it's been shut down, but <laughs> yourrichuncle.com was the, you know, where she would get her college loans, which is yeah. insane. Yeah. And so, that. you know, we knew very much there were so many people who had so many questions about money and how do you save for college, which is kind of what led us to the the radio show about really managing your finances for everybody, not just for people who've got $500,000 are trying to invest. And then certainly I think the same thing for um, with our scholars around just, you know, navigating careers. We tried to set up exposure, you know, way for them to be able to meet people and understand careers. Cause I didn't know really what I wanted to do. Even when I was in the right business, I knew it was like, Oh, I'm in the right thing, but there's 180 jobs here. Like, I'm not sure which one, what I want to do. The only way to do that is to have experiences and, and sometimes do things that are, you're like, wow, that was terrible. I should definitely not do that job. Yeah. That can be very, very helpful and productive. Well, it's a wonderful thing you're doing uh, with your husband, with the foundation. And you mentioned it just briefly there. And I just want to ask you about it. One of the projects you started, I guess, as the co-host, as you mentioned, for the Edelman Financial Engines, I guess, radio show and podcast, uh, Everyday Wealth. What's your mission? Is your mission for partnering with them on this really to just help because it is so hard to gather information for so many people on this topic? I think it's really challenging. And I think everybody is in a different place. I think there's a lot, listen, and and I was too, I'm in my now heading to my later fifties, but you know, when I was thinking about having kids, it was, how do I save for a home? And I had student loans to pay off. So, I mean, everybody's telling me you pay off your student loans, but then there's a whole other group that's telling me, oh, no, 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 you should, you should make sure that, you know, good debt is your house, but I'm supposed to have cash too. I work in TV, which is a terribly non-stable business. Do I have my 12 months of cash? Do I pay off my student loans? Do I try to buy out? I mean, you know, I, I, it was just so confusing and so overwhelming. I was lucky my husband's in finance, so he had a, a lot more of a clue than I did. You know, so you go through trying to figure out the best way to get advice and advice from people who don't have a dog in the fight, that they're not going to sell you something. Well, it's one of the things that, you know, Jean and I used to work together at the Today Show a million years ago. And, you know, she's, what's great about Jean is that she's just very much an advocate for the person, right? She's not trying to sell you anything. Oh my gosh. Her whole thing is getting on like your spending, calculating your space, stop spending. Uh, But she's very much an advocate for the audience. And, and so I really like the combination of working with someone who I knew was a real expert in finance and then getting to pick the brain of a, a wealth advisor, a financial advisor, right? But who would know like that's how they do it. Because I ask them all the time. So do people just get to come to your office and ask them, like, yes, we'd love you to work with us. Also fine if you don't, we can tell you. I don't think most people really understand how inflation is going to affect them. I can tell you, I do not. Yeah. It's like me personally. Yes, obviously stuff costs more, but but the further implications down the road to my ability to send my kids to college, 
I've got four kids eventually who I've got to put through school or my ability to retire. Does it push it back another five years? I don't know the answer to that. So to be able to, I think, pick the brain of somebody who's very knowledgeable and bounce that around with Gene, who's really, really smart, um, has just been, it's been great. And, and then the medium of radio, I've never done a radio show and I really wanted to, um, to do that, try it out. So it's been, it's been really great. So I've enjoyed yeah. it. Um, and I love the title everyday wealth is great because, you know, like Gene is such a regular I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. Like she's a regular <laughs> person. I mean, as a compliment, like, you know, she's just literally, if you ran into her on the subway, yeah. you could say, can I ask you three questions? She'd be like, yeah, it's going, you know, she's just a regular, normal person. And I think thinking about money in terms of like every day, like it's just a normal conversation. It's not the torturous once a year conversation with your tax guy. It's the Every day, let's aim for where are we going? What do you want life to be? I like the opportunity because I, I always think of money when I when I left my day job, my my weekday job at CNN. Like, what do I want to do with my life? You know, and, and Gene will always say, money's a tool, money's a tool. You know, what do you want to do? And how do you leverage that into the life you want to lead? I think for a lot of people, the answer is entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, they want to be home more or they want to be around more or they want to own their time. Even if you even if you're working 20 hours a week now, 20 hours a day now, you want to, you know, at least it's your 20 hours. And on a thing that you care about, I think for a lot of people feeling like I want to do it the way I want to do it is really important. So it's it's very much the theme of our show. Yeah. And I love that. And just what you said as being an entrepreneur and owning your time, and especially after the last past couple of years with the pandemic, understanding just how valuable time is. And sounds like now, as you, you look back and making that decision to leave CNN and start your own production company, before I let you go, I, I want to ask you if you, you have any advice for you know, there's a lot of folks out there now who are in other careers and have thought about starting other businesses, potentially doing it. Is there any advice you can share that might make them or make that journey for them a little bit easier? Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly from things I did well and things I didn't do so well. So I would say, you know, one, figure out how much money you have. Literally every single question that's going to come up next is, where's your office going to be? Do you, can you afford inventory? How much inventory? How long can you keep this going? It took us, a, I mean, we were profitable right away, partly because that's how TV contracts work, right? So CNN immediately hired me to do projects. And so we had enough business that we've always been profitable. But for a lot of businesses, you might have a fallow period, you know, of six months, maybe even a year before you get some good contacts that can really, you know, help you really build your business. Do you have the money to do that? Maybe then you do need to stay in the garage or in the kitchen until you figure out, you know, how you're going to do that. So number one, I think talking to your finance guy or your, your wealth planner immediately is really, really important. So you just know where you are. I mean, I'm that kind of person. I like to know like, do I have $12? Then I got my $12 that I can figure out how to spend that. That's one. And then use the time. I love a slow roll into it. Use that, say, you know what? I'm setting the date, it's nine months. And let's say you hate your job. I mean, I never hated my job. I always loved my jobs. But let's say you absolutely hate it. Then use that nine months of, I am going to use this phone line. I'm going to use the, the copier. I'm going to, because I am here and I'm going to, for those who are back in the office, I'm going to, eek everything I can out of the next nine months that I have to be in this job that I don't want to stay in to tee myself up 
for this thing I really want to do. Every lunch break should be phone calls and meetings with people who are doing what you want to do, you know, just really leveraging that time because there's nothing worse than, I mean, my big mistake, of course, was when, when I left CNN, we've had all these agreements to do docs. And I saw, I mean, great news, so immediately profitable. We had all these deals, but I didn't say I need six months before we start. <laughs> right, right. I'm literally Definitely. like down on your table, yeah. literally, you know, doing contract, doing like starting to shoot documentaries. I don't have a team. I don't have a desk. I don't have an office. I don't have a camera. I don't, you know, I wish somebody had just said, you know, slow it down and just put in the contract. We will commence in six months. That'll give you a nice cushion of time to get it all teed up. I did not do that. I highly recommend everybody does. But that. you also you know, figured like, it out. Yeah. Yes. Well, my husband was extremely patient with stuff <laughs> on the dining room table, but you do. I mean, but, but learn from other people's mistakes. And, and, you know, if I were in a job and I wanted to leave in nine months, I would make sure that I was having lunch or Zoom calls three times a week with friends of a friend who did a similar thing or did something kind of different or who has advice or ran a business and loved it or ran a business and hated it. And they'll tell you, ugh. A mistake I made, you know, here's what I, the thing that I love is this. And then you kind of carve your own way, taking all that valuable information, I think. Yeah. Well, Sully Dad, we uh, appreciate so much coming on How Success Happens. It's so great to see not one incredible career journey you've had, another one now that's going so well. And I wish you continued success. And thanks so much for sharing all of this with our audience. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.